the magic island. The next morning, everyone got up early and eager to continue the journey. There was another four days travelling to be done before we reached our final destination, most of it by boat. So after a rapid breakfast, our cavalcade left the Grand Hotel in three more taxis and headed for Oslo docks. There, we went on board a small coastal steamer and Nanny was heard to say, I'm sure it leaks. We shall all be food for the fishes before the day is out. Then she would disappear below for the rest of the trip. We loved this part of the journey. The splendid little vessel with its single tall funnel would move out into the calm waters of the yurt and proceed at a leisurely pace along the coast, stopping every hour or so at a small wooden jetty where a group of villagers and summer people would be waiting to welcome friends or to collect parcels and mail. Unless you have sailed down the Oslo Yard like this yourself, on a tranquil summer's day, you cannot imagine what it is like. It is impossible to describe the sensation of absolute peace and beauty that surround you. The boat weaves in and out between countless tiny islands, some with small, brightly painted wooden houses on them, but many with not a house or a tree on the bare rocks. These granite rocks are so smooth that you can lie and sun yourself on them in your bathing costume without putting a towel underneath. We would see long-legged girls and tall boys basking on the rocks of the island. There are no sandy beaches on the yurt. The rocks go straight down to the water's edge and the water is immediately deep. As a result, Norwegian children all learn to swim when they are very young because if you can't swim, it is difficult to find a place to bathe. Sometimes, when our little vessel slipped between two small islands, the channel was so narrow, we could almost touch the rocks on either side. We would pass rowboats and canoes with flaxen-haired children in them, their skins browned by the sun, and we would wave to them and watch their tiny boats rocking violently in the swell that our larger ship left behind. Late in the afternoon, we would come finally to the end of the journey, the island of Yom. This was where our mother always took us. Heaven knows how she found it, but to us, it was the greatest place on earth. About 200 yards from the jetty, along a narrow dusty road, stood a simple wooden hotel painted white. It was run by an elderly couple whose faces I still remember vividly and every year they welcomed us like old friends.
Everything about the hotel was extremely primitive, except the dining room. The walls, the ceiling and the floor of our bedrooms were made of plain unvarnished pine planks. There was a wash basin and a jug of cold water in each of them. The lavatories were in a rickety wooden outhouse at the back of the hotel and each cubicle contained nothing more than a round hole cut in a piece of wood. You sat on the hole and what you did there dropped into a pit ten feet below. If you looked down the hole, you would often see rats scurrying about in the gloom. All this we took for granted. Breakfast was the best meal of the day in our hotel, and it was all laid out on a huge table in the middle of the dining room from which you helped yourself. There were maybe 50 different dishes to choose from on that table. There were large jugs of milk, which all Norwegian children drink at every meal. There were plates of cold beef, veal, ham and pork. There was cold boiled mackerel submerged in aspic. There were spiced and pickled herring fillets, sardines, smoked eels and cod's roe. There was a large bowl piled high with hot boiled eggs. There were cold omelettes with chopped ham in them and cold chicken and hot coffee for the grown-ups and hot crisp rolls baked in the hotel kitchen which we ate with butter and cranberry jam. There were stewed apricots and five or six different cheeses including of course the ever-present jotos that Tall, brown, rather sweet Norwegian goat's cheese, which you find on just about every table in the land. After breakfast, we collected our bathing things and the whole party, all ten of us, would pile into our boat. Everyone has some sort of boat in Norway. Nobody sits around in front of the hotel, nor does anyone sit on the beach because there aren't any beaches to sit on. In the early days, we had only a rowboat, but a very fine one it was. It carried all of us easily with places for two rowers. My mother took one pair of oars and my fairy ancient half-brother took the other and off we would go. My mother and the half-brother, he was somewhere around 18 then, were expert rowers. They kept in perfect time and the oars went click, click, click in their wooden rowlocks, and the rowers 
never paused once during the long 40-minute journey. The rest of us sat in the boat, trailing our fingers in the clear water and looking for jellyfish. We skimmed across the sound and went whizzing through narrow channels with rocky islands on either side, heading, as always, for a very secret, tiny patch of sand on a distant island that only we knew about. In the early days, we needed a place like this, where we could paddle and play about because my youngest sister was only one. The next sister was three and I was four. The rocks and the deep water were no good to us. Every day for several summers, that tiny secret sand patch on that tiny secret island was our regular destination. We would stay there for three or four hours, messing about in the water and in the rock pools and getting extraordinarily sunburnt. In late years, when we were all a little older and could swim, the daily routine became different. By then, my mother had acquired a motorboat, a small and not very seaworthy white wooden vessel which sat far too low in the water and was powered by an unreliable one-cylinder engine. The fairly ancient half-brother was the only one who could make the engine go at all. It was extremely difficult to start and he always had to unscrew the sparking plug and pour petrol into the cylinder. Then he swung a flywheel round and round and with a bit of luck, after a lot of coughing and spluttering, the thing would finally get going. When we first acquired the motorboat, my youngest sister was four and I was seven. And by then, all of us had learnt to swim. The exciting new boat made it possible for us to go much farther afield and every day we would travel far out into the yurt hunting for a different, for a different island. There were hundreds of them to choose from. Some were very small, no more than 30 yards long. Others were quite large, maybe half a mile in length. It was wonderful to have such a choice of places and it was terrific fun to explore each island before we went swimming off the rocks. There were the wooden skeletons of shipwrecked boats on those islands and big white bones. Were they human bones? And wild raspberries and mussels clinging to the rocks. And some of the islands had shaggy, long-haired goats on them and even sheep. Now and again, when we were out in the open water, beyond the chain of islands, 
the sea became very rough, and that was when my mother enjoyed herself most. Nobody, not even the tiny children, bothered with life belts in those days. We would cling to the sides of our funny little white motorboat, driving through mountainous white-capped waves and getting drenched to the skin while my mother calmly handled the tiller. There were times, I promise you, when the waves were so high that as we slid down into a trough, the whole world disappeared from sight. Then up and up, the little boat would climb, standing almost vertically on its tail until we reached the crest of the next wave, and then it was like being on top of a foaming mountain. It requires great skill to handle a small boat in seas like this, like these. The thing can easily capsize or be swamped if the bows do not meet the great pulling breakers at just the right angle. But my mother knew exactly how to do it, and we were never afraid. We loved every minute of it. All of us except for our long-suffering nanny, who would bury her face in her hands and call aloud upon the Lord to save her soul. In the early evenings, we, never, we nearly always went out fishing. We collected mussels from the rocks for bait. Then we got into either the rowboat or the motorboat and pushed off to drop anchor later in some likely spot. The water was very deep and often we had to let out 200 feet of line before we touched bottom. We would sit silent and tense, waiting for a bite, and it always amazed me how even a little nibble at the end of that long line would be transmitted to one's fingers. A bite! Someone would shout, jerking the line. I've got him! It's a big one. It's a whopper. And then came the thrill of hauling in the line, hand over hand, and peering over the side into the clear water to see how big the fish really was as he neared the surface. Cod, Whitting, Haddock and Mackerel, we caught them all and bore them back triumphantly to the hotel kitchen where the cherry fat woman who did the cooking promised to get them ready for our supper. I tell you, my friends, those were the days. A visit to the doctor. I have only one unpleasant memory of the summer holidays in Norway. We were in the grandparents' house in Oslo and my mother said to me, we are going to the doctor this afternoon. He wants to look at your nose and mouth. I think I was eight at the time. 
What's wrong with my nose and mouth? I asked. Nothing much, my mother said, but I think you've got adenoids. What are they? I asked. Don't worry about it, she said. It's nothing. I held my mother's hand as we walked to the doctor's house. It took us about half an hour. There was a kind of dentist's chair in the surgery and I was lifted into it. The doctor had a round mirror strapped to his forehead and he peered up my nose and into my mouth. He then took my mother aside and they held a whispered conversation. I saw my mother looking rather grim, but she nodded. The doctor now put some water to boil in an aluminium mug over a glass flame, and into the boiling water he placed a long, thin, shiny steel instrument. I sat there watching the steam coming off the boiling water. I was not in the least apprehensive. I was too young to realise that something out of the ordinary was going to happen. Then a nurse dressed in white came in. She was carrying a red rubber apron and a curved white enamel bowl. She put the apron over the front of my body and tied it around my neck. It was far too big. Then she held the enamel bowl under my chin. The curve of the bowl fitted perfectly against the curve of my chest. The doctor was bending over me. In his hand he held that long shiny steel instrument. He held it right in front of my face and to this day I can still describe it perfectly. It was about the thickness and length of a pencil, and like many pencils, it had a lot of sides to it. Toward the end, the metal became much thinner, and at the very end of the thin bit of metal, there was a tiny blade set at an angle. The blade wasn't more than a centimetre long, very small, very sharp and very shiny. Open your mouth, the doctor said, speaking Norwegian. I refused. I thought he was going to do something to my teeth, and everything anyone had ever done to my teeth had been painful. It won't take two seconds, the doctor said. He spoke gently, and I was seduced by his voice. Like an ass, I opened my mouth. The tiny blade flashed in the bright light and disappeared into my mouth. It went high up into the roof of my mouth and the hand that held the blade gave four or five very quick little twists and the next moment out of my mouth into the basin came tumbling a whole mass of flesh and blood. I was too shocked and outraged to do anything but yelp. I was horrified by the huge red lump that had fallen out of my mouth into the white basin 
and my first thought was that the doctor had cut out the whole of the middle of my head. Those were your adenoids, I heard the doctor saying. I sat there gasping. The roof of my mouth seemed to be on fire. I grabbed my mother's hand and held on to it tight. I couldn't believe that anyone would do this to me. Stay where you are, the doctor said. You'll be all right in a minute. Blood was still coming out of my mouth and dripping into the basin the nurse was holding. Spit it all out, she said. There's a good boy. You'll be able to breathe much better through your nose after this, the doctor said. The nurse wiped my lips and washed my face with a wet flannel. Then they lifted me out of the chair and stood me on my feet. I felt a bit groggy. We'll get you home, my mother said, taking my hand. Down the stairs we went and onto the street. We started walking. I said walking. No trolley car or taxi. We walked the full half-hour journey back to my grandparents' house, and when we arrived at last, I can remember as clearly as anything my grandmother saying, Let him sit down in that chair and rest for a while. After all, he's had an operation. Someone placed a chair for me beside my grandmother's armchair, and I sat down. My grandmother reached over and covered one of my hands in both of hers. That won't be the last time you go to a doctor in your life, she said. And with a bit of luck, they won't do you too much harm. That was in 1924. And taking out a child's adenoids, and often the tonsils as well, without any anaesthetic, was common practice in those days. I wonder, though, what you would think if some doctor did that to you today.